2: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, March 3rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor rolls back restrictions on mask wearing and gatherings while advocating vaccinations. Then the long-promised teacher pay raise sits in legislative limbo. We look at how and if the raise will come this year. Plus, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we examine how yesterday's Supreme Court hearing could affect voting rights in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians will no longer be required to wear a mask in public. Yesterday, Governor Tate Reeves announced he is rolling back many of the restrictions designed to combat transmission of the coronavirus. Reeves said with a steep decline in hospitalizations and deaths, it's time for Mississippi to open up.
1: If businesses or individuals decide to take additional precautions, they are absolutely within their rights. In fact, it may be smart, but we are not going to continue to use the heavy hand of government when it is no longer justified by the reality we see around us. Our hospitalizations have plummeted, and our case numbers have also fallen dramatically. In fact, our case numbers have fallen to the point where no county currently meets the original criteria that we put in place for a mask mandate. When our new order goes into effect, we will have done more than 700,000 vaccinations targeting those who are most vulnerable amongst us to this virus the majority of Mississippians over the age of 65 will have received at least one dose. I originally signed these orders, and I made very clear what my goals were. It was never to prevent all possible spread of COVID-19, because we viewed that as unrealistic. But it was always about protecting the integrity of, Of our health care system.
2: While government orders requiring masks and limiting gatherings are going away, public health guidance still places heavy reliance on those mitigation strategies. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs is strongly encouraging those who have not yet been vaccinated to continue safe practices.
3: We're putting out new public health guidance that very clearly outlines for people over 65 or if you're someone with a chronic medical condition and over the age of 16 that puts you at higher risk, we are strongly recommending that you do not attend any social activities or any mass gatherings at all until you get vaccinated. All of these folks are eligible to be vaccinated. And if we want to really have an impact on our hospitalizations, morbidity and mortality, we need to make sure that we get as many vulnerable Mississippians vaccinated as quickly as possible. So where do we stand on that score? And I think on some measures we're doing extremely well. If we look at at people who are 75 years of old of age and older, 50% have received at least one dose of COVID vaccine. And a large proportion of those are fully immunized. If we look at people 65 and older altogether, We're at about 45 percent, so we're making good progress, but we're not there. We want to protect everyone who's most vulnerable. So before we start opening up a little bit on a personal basis, please get vaccinated before you do any mass gathering, including church, funerals, sporting events, weddings. Get vaccinated. Get protected.
2: Governor Reeves says he will now focus on getting Mississippians vaccinated while getting out of the business of telling residents what they can and cannot do.
1: Executive orders that interfered with people's lives were the worst, but the only possible interventions for most of the last year. You've heard me say this many times before. I never took any pleasure in signing executive orders. I did it because I believed it was the right thing to do for our people at that time. But now we are putting all of our focus towards the rapid distribution of the vaccine. And the governor's office is getting out of the business of telling people what they can and cannot do. Let's be honest. Throughout the last year, we as a state have been among the four or five most open states in America. And we've been rewarded for it with more jobs, a stronger recovery, and more economic activity. But that's not because the measures we put in place were a light burden. It's because the measures in the rest of the country were so harsh. We all need to recognize that none of these orders, in our state or any other state, are anything short of unprecedented, particularly when you think about the length of time we have been holding these very press conferences. We know that these orders have to end, and I have said repeatedly that these orders have to end at the earliest possible moment. By and large, this is that moment.
2: The executive order doesn't limit the ability of independent businesses and municipalities to enforce localized mitigation strategies. It also keeps in place mask requirements in K-12 settings. Dobbs says these measures are proven effective in keeping schools open.
3: In the school setting, it seems like that kids mostly catch it outside of school. They catch it at a sleepover. They catch it at a party, a birthday party, those sorts of things. So we do know that the things that are in place to protect kids in school work. Um, are there vulnerabilities? Of course, um, extracurricular activities, you know, school buses, you know, um, and lunch and stuff like that. So, yes, um, you know, we early on, if you'll remember, there was this sort of theory that kids can't spread COVID. And, and I think anybody with lick a sense never really bought into that, but um, and if, it's not surprising that kids can spread COVID. They just don't get as sick from it. Some do, but not as much. So I do think that those, these, um, these very simple safety measures make a ton of sense to keep kids in school. Our objectives are to keep kids in school. If they're out on quarantine, they're not in school. So it's better to keep them in school.
2: The new executive order, which also removes capacity limitations on outdoor stadiums and arenas, comes on the eve of spring break and the peak of college baseball season. Dr. Dobbs is urging residents to continue with caution.
3: Of course, we can have a rebound, especially for folks who are not immunized um, getting together. You know, the same simple things, you, you know, Mississippi didn't go overboard right on the restrictions and common sense stuff works. We were back in school and were able to do that quite nicely. I think the same thing goes with, with spring break, you know, do stuff outdoors. Don't group together indoors with a lot of folks. There's no way in the heck I would go sit in a crowded bar right now and indoors or out really. So please exercise caution right now. Um, There are safe things to do if you're outdoors at something and you're spaced out nicely from other folks, it's going to be pretty safe. Um, But you can catch COVID and we we can mess this up, right? So please help us just be a little bit cautious, especially going through spring break.
2: The new executive order goes into effect at 5 p.m. today. Coming up, the long-promised teacher pay raise sits in legislative limbo. We look at how and if the raise will come this year. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: (music)
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. For the second year in a row, members of the Mississippi Senate are including a teacher pay raise on their list of top priorities. This session, the Senate passed a standalone bill that included a, a raise and lifted the salary floor for new teachers. That bill had until yesterday to clear House committees. MPB's Ashley Norwood caught up with Senate Education Chair Dennis DeBar on deadline day.
5: The, the bill that has the major impact are the teacher pay raise bill, Senate Bill 2001, which is in the House. Uh, that's been the priority for the lieutenant governor in the Senate for two years now, as seen by the vote in the Senate and the co-authors in the Senate. So that's the, there's many bills that are going to be impactful, but that is going to be our greatest impact for teachers. Um, the reciprocity bill uh, for teachers to come into the state and teach, that's in the House as well. Um, the early learning collaboratives. We passed that this morning. The, the dyslexia bill. Uh, all these have a great impact on the students and their achievement. And I can name new, many others. But um, uh, we, we, I worked with Chairman Bennett this year to really focus on how does the bills that we have uh, this year impact education and improve the educational standards. And uh, really, every one that we passed. Um, has impact on education and ch- increasing our standards and improving the education for our children.
6: Now, on the teacher pay, so if the House doesn't take it up, what happens?
5: If the House bill, the House doesn't take the Senate bill up, then there is no vehicle that I'm aware of. Um, the, the tax bill that the House sent to us does have the, the pay raise bill in it. I don't know where that's going. I don't think uh, the Lieutenant Governor is what his position is. I know I heard him on the radio this morning I'll state that he was studying it and um, not sure about the tax increases on different various items and, and so forth. So that's a different area. Um, I focus on education right now, and I, I want to see Senate Bill 2001 passed by the House, and um, we can get our pay raise for our teachers and teachers' assistants.
6: Just a quick reminder, Senate Bill 2001, what is the teacher pay raise?
5: What does it do? It basically gives a uh, $1,000 pay raise for teachers and teachers' assistants. Uh, for teachers that are from zero to three years of experience, it raises their uh, salary to 37000 which is a $1,110 increase.
6: Are you hearing from teachers who are concerned that the teacher pay has been tacked on to the tax bill, which is still uncertain.
5: I've heard from several teachers. um, They just want to see the House and the Senate work together to make the best decisions for education and our teachers. And uh, whatever form or fashion that may be, they just want to see us work together and do our job. And so... That's why I'm, I'm hoping they take up Senate Bill 2001 and, and the House will pass it. I don't think there's anybody that's opposed to a pay raise for teachers. Uh, we just need to do our job and, and get, the, get the legislation passed And on to the governor. And I spoke with the governor again yesterday. He's, he'll sign the bill. So no one's opposed to it. We just got to do our job and get it done.
6: Do you have any thoughts on the tax bill? Is it something you're supporting? Sorry, I can't hear you. Do you have any thoughts on the tax bill? Is it something you're supporting?
5: We're studying it. I'm concerned about... I'm all in favor of returning uh, money or allowing uh, people to keep their money in their pockets. Um, I'm, I'm for removing or reducing the income tax burden on, on folks. I'm concerned about the increases on farm implements. And, and does it really, uh, is it a net neutral or uh, for folks or is it going to be an increase? And so we're studying that. I know Lieutenant Governor's office is studying it. And uh, we may not have time this session, you know, with the two or three weeks we have left but I definitely think it should be a priority uh, going into next year if we don't get something done this year.
6: Anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to add?
5: No, uh, thank you. I know it's a busy day. Thank you for being here, and uh, um, just thank you for what you do. And thank you for our teachers and educators. Uh, Again, I can't stop thanking them for what they've been doing. Uh, This is during these difficult year, year and a half.
6: Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you.
5: Thank you.
2: The Senate bill did not clear the committee process in the House and as a result died. The House tied a potential pay raise to their tax reform plan, a plan under heavy scrutiny in the Senate. However, late yesterday, the Senate Education Committee did pass a clean version of the House's version of the bill, meaning a vehicle still exists for a teacher pay raise to pass this session. Yesterday, DeBar told Luke Ramseth of the Daily Journal, this is the only clean bill before us where we ensure that politics do not enter the fray and we ensure our teachers are paid close to what they deserve. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we examine how yesterday's Supreme Court hearing could affect voting rights in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
6: Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app.
4: A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, "Eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute.
0: Regarding when you cough and then you swallow, does that phlegm go down uh, back where it came from, or does it go in your stomach? What happens to it?
4: We call that a productive cough, which just means when you cough, you cough up some of that mucus. Mucus is protective. Your lungs use that as to sort of trap foreign substances, whether that's dust in the air, whether it's vir- viral particles or bacteria. And then there's little cilia, which are these little hairs in the lower airways that sort of tra- it sort of pushes that up into the airway. And then when you cough it up. It's in the back of your throat or your mouth, and then if you swallow it, it does not go back down in the lungs. It goes down into your stomach, Uh, and that's assuming that you have a normal swallowing mechanism. Some people can't protect their their lungs or their airway that way, like if you've had a stroke or uh, certain other conditions, but generally that goes down in the stomach. And in the stomach, uh, you know, the stomach is a very acidic environment. Normally, it has a pH of about 2 to 3, and it helps to break down food, but it also breaks down in this... uh, 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 viral particles, and bacteria as well. So it helps. It's one of our body's natural defenses against infection. So you don't mean to worry about that. A lot of people say, well, if you're going to cough up something like that, you should spit it out. That's fine. Uh, But if you swallow it, you know, like kids do this all the time. They don't They don't spit stuff out. They just swallow it. That doesn't go back into your lungs. It should go, you know, down into your stomach. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio.
0: Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio
3: channel.
2: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. A recent Supreme Court hearing could go a long way in deciding how new voting restrictions will be judged under the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The high court heard arguments in Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee yesterday. Following last year's general election, Republican-controlled state legislatures across the country are offering up new voting laws that could limit the ability to vote and create additional barriers to the ballot box. Ezra Rosenberg co-director of the voting rights project shares more
0: the um the case that was heard in supreme court the bernovich case dealt with two uh, laws and policies of the state of arizona the first prohibited anyone from voting out of precinct meaning that if someone voted out of her his uh, voting precinct that vote would not be counted the second policy uh, prohibited uh, certain people uh, from collecting absentee ballots for others, limited it to very few people. So neighbors, for example, could not help someone cast his or her absentee ballot by uh, collecting it from that person and delivering it. Those were the two laws that were ruled by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals sitting as a full court on bank as violating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act.
2: It's certainly what happens here... Uh, all states are watching closely because th- what? Thirty-three states have already offered bills this year in their legislatures to uh, affect some form of the Voting Rights Act, and it's all it's all under Section Two of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, from what I understand. What what are the of the, of the bills that are being introduced, they sort of fall into categories. What are some of them, and, and why Republican-driven?
0: Uh, sure. The, the, the bills deal with such things as cutting back on early voting. And, for example, in Georgia, there's a bill that's pending that would cut back on uh, voting on weekends. And uh, the uh, black populations make great use of uh, uh, voting on Sundays. They have a program called Souls to the Polls, so that will have a terrible impact on um, uh, black voters in, in, in Georgia. Uh, there are laws that would limit the use of drop boxes, which make it much easier for people to, uh, to cast their ballots. There are laws that are around or that legislation that's pending uh, that would make it much more difficult to vote by mail. Instead of making it easier to vote by mail, they would, for example, require that if someone's voting by mail, they have to append to the ballot uh, copies of IDs, and people do not have printers or copiers in their house, particularly those who are poor, and this will disproportionately impact them.
2: And Mississippi is one of those states that has, well, there are three bills that have been introduced that have to do with purging voter rolls although that's not the word that's right. used. Um, there's one to eliminate the use of certain forms of ID. Uh, there's one that introduces or that proof of citizenship must be provided to register to vote. And I believe overall... Only by
0: natural... By, by I'm sorry to interrupt you, yep. but only by naturalized citizens. And we actually have a suit that's already sort of been filed in Mississippi challenging uh, that, um, that law uh, the first uh, piece of legislation that you mentioned, which would uh, remove people from the roles if they don't, if their information does not exactly match with certain databases, which have been historically proved to be not only inaccurate, but also inaccurate in a discriminatory way, in the sense that people of color are, um, are more likely to be removed from the roles uh, by use of uh, that kind of exact match
2: system. Can you tell us some of the questions from uh, the justices that were of interest or pointed regarding this argument?
0: Uh, sure. I mean, the, the justices, uh, really, uh, all of the justices seem to be very interested in how uh, each side would deal with different hypotheticals. And the interesting thing was that, particularly in response to questions by Justice Kagan and and Justice Barrett picked up on this, that the uh, attorney for the first attorney who argued on behalf of the uh, state um, and the Republican National Committee essentially conceded uh, that, yes, it would violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act if, for example... Uh, the polling places were located in a way that made it 10 times more difficult for black voters to vote than for white white voters. And many of the justices picked up on the fact that that uh, answer was uh, in contrast to what uh, they had said in their briefs. And I I think it shows that uh, the the weakness of of their entire case.
2: Of the pieces of legislation introduced In 2021 so far, are there any, or in the categories we talked about, are there any that sort of top the list that would inhibit a minority group's right to vote or ability to vote?
0: Well, I I think many of them uh, that are, and we we talked about uh, a few of them in,
2: in Arizona
0: and in Georgia and Mississippi, um, in Arkansas, uh, which is looking at a very strict voter ID law, um, many of these taken individually or taken or the provisions of different statutes taken together, uh, you can have a terrible, just disproportionate impact on the rights of persons of color to vote. Uh, and um, you know, I think that uh, you know, we've talked a bit, bit about why.
2: But not necessarily one more than another.
0: Well, no, no, not necessarily. It, it's, it's hard to say until we see the, the final language of, of, of uh, the statutes uh, wh- where they are. We have to look at the social and historical conditions uh, and how uh, that are present in a specific jurisdiction and how those social and historic conditions interact. Uh, with uh, the law to make it uh, more, more difficult for persons of color to vote. And there's also a question as to whether uh, the, some of these uh, statutes are being enacted with discriminatory intent. And uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the uh, entire record and all the facts are.
2: Ezra Rosenberg is the co-director of the Voting Rights Project for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Karen, pleasure talking with you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning.